You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good, good. We had a, uh, before we begin, a great time this weekend on Friday and Saturday with uh, Dr. Chris Thurman. Um, really, I think a lot of just very practical um, advice, tips, however you want to call it, on, on how we do relationships, and, and not just marriage relationships, but how we relate to other people. One of the things I loved about his presentation was how much he hangs on the brokenness of humanity, the fallenness of humanity, um, and, and how that really, you know, we talk about that a lot, that, that we're all broken, that we're all sinful, that we have a sin nature, and uh, Dr. Thurman did a really good job of, I think, fleshing out what that actually looks like in the context of relationships, and so it was just real helpful uh, time, very enjoyable to be with, with one another. What most of you probably did not realize is that Friday night, when we kicked off and, and had music going, and then Chris got up here and began that first session, James was here, but in my office filming, um, he had just gotten done filming Chris Thurman and was filming Rich Moore from Pure Desire for uh, the first two sessions, or, or I guess uh, filming sessions, for Fearless Series for Men. And right. uh, yeah, and so I was going to have him say a little bit about that because I think this is a, a really important project that he's working on. It's been one of those things that um, as I go around the country and in churches and speak at conferences and that various kinds of things and talk about the Fearless Series, um, that invariably for the last year since Fearless Series for Women was released, uh, there will always be men that will come up to me and say, when are you going to do one for men who are survivors of sexual abuse? And after obviously pastoring for 40 years, I know that that is a major problem. As a matter of fact, we say uh, at a minimum, one in three women by the time she's 18 years old will experience some form of sexual abuse. And they tell us that about one in four men will as boys. And so this is, this is for men at epidemic proportions for little boys being abused, sexual abused, and the, the trauma that that creates and the, the repercussions in their life. And so I've been saying as I go around the country, I've been saying, well, if God gives me longevity of days and the Fearless Series for Women gets really on its feet, then I'm going to do it. And they just keep pressing me, pressing me. And so a couple weeks ago, I decided, okay, it's time to do it. And I was shocked at how quickly people, men around the country who are professionals in the field of, of helping men who have stories of sexual abuse when they were young boys. Uh, are willing to be a part of this and go on film. And so since Chris Thurman was going to be coming up to speak, uh, I, I knew that he had some things to say about shame and how shame lies to us and trauma, sexual trauma, physical trauma always creates shame and all those kinds of things. And I flew Rich Moore in from Oregon, who has become a dear friend of mine. Rich is the group's coordinator worldwide for Pure Desire Ministries that works with men and women in the area of sexual addiction and pornography addiction. And I knew that Rich had a personal story of being sexually abused when he was a boy and how that had impacted his life. And now how he's worked with literally tens of thousands of men around the world, helping them to overcome the trauma of that. So we flew Rich in uh, and he was giving his story while Chris was actually here, and we, Michael set up all the equipment, and it was just an incredible experience, an incredible start to the Fearless Series for Men. Uh, one of the things I'm most excited about is that Fearless, I mean, uh, Focus on the Family has agreed to become a part of this project. Uh, 
They have invited me to come out in May, uh, May the, I can't remember what the date is, but going out to Colorado Springs, they've invited me to speak to their 18 counselors that they have on staff. They have 18 counselors that are on staff for Focus on the Family, and the director of counseling uh, for Focus on the Family Worldwide, his name is Jeremy Keaton. Jeremy has agreed to sit for an interview for the series, and so I'm really pumped about uh, Focus. They did their due diligence. They checked me out, had a lot of referrals and those kinds of things before they'll be involved with anything. And the fact that they said they wanted to be involved, this was just a tremendous, tremendous uh, compliment uh, to the work that we do and to this subject that is not being addressed. So anyway, I don't want to preach a sermon about that, but I was really pumped about the opportunity to actually get started. The other night. I only started planning two weeks ago. <laughs> two weeks ago when I finally said, okay, I'm going to pull the trigger, started sending out information, asking for these people if they would be willing to interview from all over the country. They started coming back in and before you know it, we've already got two of them on tape. It was, so. it was, it was interesting. He, he came to talk to me about it, and, and Thurman was on his way uh, that week, which was not this past week, but the week before, because we had to push the conference. And, and uh, I thought, hey, why don't I just ask? Because he's a psychologist. Maybe he has mm-hmm. something to offer. And, and so I called him, and, and at first I couldn't get If you were here on the conference, you understand Thurman has a very dry sense of humor. And so you can never really get a read on, on what is this guy thinking when you're talking to him. And, and he said, you know, actually, that is one of my, that is one of my specialties. Is, Which is, is about the lies that yeah. we create from trauma. From trauma. And how shame becomes a liar to us. And although he wasn't speaking specifically to sexual abuse, any kind of emotional or physical trauma that is in, in violation that way creates shame, yeah. creates the lies. And so he, and I like him, he's a man of few words. He is. He just gets right to the heart of it. Yeah. You know, so editing his interview is going to be real it's easy. Be easy. He's yeah. got so much. It's all content. There's not a lot of fluff no. in anything that he says, and There's, I like that. There was not a lot of fluff this weekend. It was just, uh, he was great. It was great. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's jump in. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah 1. We began a new series last week called Under the Influence, and last week we did uh, sort of a meet and greet under the, the character of Nehemiah to figure out a little bit about who he is, and we talked about how he is, in lack of better terms, an influencer, meaning that he just influenced a lot of people in his life for the kingdom of God. And, and one of our goals for this whole series really is to convince you that you can be an influencer as well. Right. That Nehemiah wasn't a king, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a prophet, he's just a regular, ordinary guy. And if God can use him to be an influencer, he can use any of us as well. All you need really is four characteristics. And we talked through these last week in depth. And so if you weren't here and you want to go back and listen to that, it is on our YouTube channel and, and on the website and I think Spotify, a variety of other places that you can listen to it. But you need four characteristics. One is you need desire. You need a desire to be used by God. God is, is you know, not often in the business of working through people who are just completely resistant to anything he wants to do. Typically, it is people who have a desire to be used by God that God goes after. Second, you need direction. And one of the things that James unfolded is this principle, really of physics, but it works spiritually as well, which is that it is much easier to direct a moving object than it is to move a static object. And so one of the things that we said is, is influencers understand that direction is needed. And so what we do is we identify places, uh, godly ways that we can begin moving, and, and, and just that's a beginning place. God can easily redirect me. It's much easier to do that than to get me going in the first place. Uh, third is, is dependence. In other words, you need to have relinquished control over your life back to God. You admit powerlessness is how we say it here. It's kind of our vernacular. You allow God to redirect you. Oftentimes, when you begin moving in a godly direction, there's nothing wrong with the direction. It's a good direction. It's just not the direction God wants you moving in. 
And so God is going to begin to redirect you mm-hmm. to the direction he wants you to move, but you have to be dependent enough upon him to allow him to do that, to give him control, to give him access to your life in order for that to happen. And finally, you need determination. In other words, you never quit despite what the, the consequences are, despite what things look like. You take the word quit out of your vocabulary and That's you right. continue on. You press forward no matter what happens you stay the course. And Nehemiah possessed really all four of these characteristics. That's, that's what we're going to find over the course of this study is that he, he is a man of desire to be used by God. He moves in a direction. He's dependent upon God to, to redirect him in whatever way God would choose to do so. And he is determined no matter what it looks like, no matter how bad it gets, he right. stays the course the entire time. Um, Nehemiah begins in chapter 1 with a conversation He has a conversation with his brother. If you remember last week, to kind of set the stage for some context, uh, Israel, Judah in particular, the southern kingdom, is moved into Babylonian exile. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet says it will happen for 70 years, and after that 70 years is over with, God will then restore Judah back into the land of Jerusalem. And and so that takes place, and, and, and they go into exile in the middle of exile, Babylon is sacked. Persia takes control. And so now they're in the, in the service of, of the servitude of the Persian nation. And then after that 70 years, just as God said, this, this coming back to the land begins to happen. But it happens in three phases. The first phase happens when the Persian king Cyrus allows Zerubbabel to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The Let's temple, say all that together, class. Yeah. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. There you go. He, uh, the, the temple had been completely destroyed in the exile, and so his task was to go back and rebuild it. And it takes a long time. Rebuilding a temple is, is you know, it's a big feat. Uh, Sixty years after that, uh, Ezra is raised up as a leader to come back and reestablish the Mosaic law. So uh, the temple is built. Now the law needs to be instituted so that they can begin faithfully practicing the faith that God gave them through Moses. And then 13 years after that, we end up in the time of Nehemiah. And, and so this is where Nehemiah exists. The temple has been rebuilt, although it's, it's not as good as the original temple. That's actually a really kind of funny part of Ezra's story. It says that they go to do the ribbon cutting for the, the new temple, and everyone's cheering, and we have a temple, but it says that there are some in the crowd who are old who remember the first temple, and they're, they're crying, they're weeping because of how hideous this thing is. This is. This, this is, is not the old temple. This is not God's house. So yeah. it took a while to get all the yeah. decoration done. Absolutely. That. that just goes to show that anytime you do a remodel, there's always people <laughs> there's always who people. prefer the old way. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's a weird thing. Um, so the temple's been rebuilt. The law's been reestablished. But things are not well in Jerusalem. Nehemiah begins having this conversation with his brother Hanani, and we do believe that they're brothers. Uh, he could mean like brother as in like, you know, friend or whatever, but chapter 7, we're going to get some terminology that makes us think that, no, they were actually probably really brothers. And uh, Hanani was in Jerusalem for a long period of time and returns back into Persia. And, and so Nehemiah begins with him asking a question. He says, I question them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So just imagine for a moment. Right? Nehemiah hasn't seen his brother and at this point, probably years. You know, he, he comes back from Jerusalem to Persia. Hanani was probably there under the leadership of Ezra, helping with the law. And so it had been probably several years since he had been back. And he finally comes back to Persia. 
Nehemiah's never seen Jerusalem before, and so, you know, he greets his brother, and his brother's there, and Nehemiah's like, you know, brother, tell me about it. What was it like? How are the people there? He's wanting some good news. Yeah, how are things going (laughs) in the motherland? How is it, right? And this is his brother, verse 3. He said, they said to me, those who survived the exile are and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. (laughs) The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So things are not well in Jerusalem. The wall is broken and the gates are burned. And this presents a major problem, not only for Nehemiah, but for all of Judah in the land of Jerusalem. Now listen. And Nehemiah determines to rebuild the wall, and Persia's going to pay and for Persia's it. And Persia's going to pay for it. I know, yeah. Ever since that, Joe. You just, it, is, it is true, though. So listen, regardless of, of what you think <laughs> politically for a moment, because I realize that this topic is, is you know, somewhat on the forefront of some people's minds, Regardless of of your political convictions, walls, as we understand them historically, are incredibly important. They serve a profoundly important role historically. They're not only means of defining borders for nations, which is very important, um, but they were even more importantly defensive mechanisms that provided a great deal of protection for people such that if an invasion occurred or a neighboring nation wanted to attack them, it is much more difficult to do so when you have to deal with a wall. It's just the truth. It's Historically, regardless of what you think, and frankly, I don't care, um, whatever your thoughts are about walls, they are historically tremendously valuable. There's a high premium. A lot of me has rubbed off on him, hasn't it? So listen, this is, this is troubling news for Nehemiah. That's a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> This is troubling news for Nehemiah. This is, this is an issue. This is not what he wants to hear. Verse 4, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Mm-hmm. I mean, this wasn't just like a, oh, no, there's no wall. This is a big problem. This is a big deal. People are going to die because there's no wall, right? There's no defense. And so anyone who wants to come in and do anything can, and lives are going to be lost. This really shakes him up. But then notice immediately after that what he says. He says, I prayed before the God of heaven. Hmm. And so the rest of this chapter then is a, a recording of Nehemiah's prayer. He sits down, he, he is emotionally impacted by this news, and he takes his emotions and moves them into prayer. He moves them into prayer before the God of heaven. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the different aspects of this prayer and how we as influencers then should pray. If, if we're going to influence people for the kingdom of God, then we need to understand how influencers pray, how they pray, what they understand about God, and, and, and how that influences how they go before him. And so James is going to kick us off with how Nehemiah prayed. You know, I hear, I've heard people say a lot through the years, they don't really know how to pray. And my recommendation is always to go to the scripture and actually read the prayers of of people in the scripture because many of God's people's uh, prayers are in the scripture from Old Testament to the New Testament. If you look in the, the letters that Paul wrote, a lot of his prayers are actually recorded. He actually tells the people he's writing to how he is praying for them and how he has prayed. And King David, 
if you read his psalms, most of them are couched in the version of a prayer that he has turned into a song. And he's, because he's a musician, he sings his prayer to God. And, and I love to do that. I love with my guitar to take my guitar and with worship songs, uh, which many of them are kind of in the form of a prayer. I, could, I just have a prayer time with the Lord with music. And, uh, and so David often did that. But Nehemiah here is also, uh, we get an opportunity to look at how did this man pray. I mean, he accomplished something that was enormous, something that was beyond really human comprehension to be able to do in that day and time. And yet, how did that happen? Well, it happened because of what he understood, and we get to learn a lot of that uh, through his prayer. And so I want you to notice how Nehemiah prayed. First of all, this was what I would call a spontaneous prayer on Nehemiah's part. Derek's already talked in verse 1 through 3. He gets this report from his brother who comes back from Jerusalem. Nehemiah's never been to Jerusalem. He was born second or third generation into captivity in Babylon, and then the Persians came. And so he's never even seen the Holy Land. He's never seen it. So he gets this report, and it's not good. The wall is still down. The gates are still broken. And when he heard that, he was in great distress, and it says that he immediately went into prayer about this issue. And I think that the kind of prayer that Nehemiah how this happened is something that we as Christians so often miss. We put a lot of emphasis, and rightly so, on planned times of prayer. If you're on the front row, I just spit on you. Of of planned times of prayer. I spit my COVID all over you. Mm. Uh, You know, and that's right. There should be planned times when we say, okay, I'm going to discipline myself, and I'm going to start my day in prayer, or I'm going to close my day in prayer. And that's important, but because we often put the focus on that so much, we miss the opportunity to have what's called what is spontaneous prayer, and that's a prayer that is, is ready to go at any time. Now, think about this. Nehemiah hadn't planned this prayer. He hadn't set this aside. He heard news that was distressing, and what did he do? He immediately went into prayer, and you and I can do the same type of thing. When you're driving down the road and something comes to mind, you should pray. Keep your eye open. If you've got two, I guess you can close one, but keep at least one open. I've proven you can drive with one eye. Maybe not all that well, but But, you can get it done. But probably don't do that. But probably don't do that anyway. If you're talking on the phone and someone shares something with you that's distressing, pray right then. You're going along and something comes to mind, whatever you're doing. This is an example of spontaneous prayer, which is actually taught in the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says that we're to pray without ceasing. That's not a suggestion. That's a command, that we're to pray without ceasing. (laughs) Well, I don't know. How do you do that? I think that what Nehemiah did is what this verse is actually saying, that that something happens and you don't put it off till later. You go right then. You go right there. It's a spontaneous prayer. And that you live your life day by day, moment by moment, on your on your tiptoes, if, as it were, on the precipice of prayer at any time. And something happens, something comes to mind, and you, you, you begin to pray. And that prayer may be a couple of words. It may be a sentence. It may be a song of praise. It may lead you into a season of praise. But it's, it's like having this phone line open. You've dialed into the kingdom, the king of kings, and he has left it open, and you've got your end open. And at any moment during the day, you can pray to the king of kings. It's spontaneous prayer. And I'll tell you, there's nothing that will change your sense of connection with the living God than being willing to pray spontaneously all through the day. Now get this. The great thing about this prayer is that you don't need an introduction to it and you don't need a closing. Mm. You don't need to start 
dear Lord. <laughs> you know, we, we get into these, these situations or we get into these habits where we've got certain words that we don't think we can really pray until we've gone through our phrases and our words, right? And at the end, we've got our certain words and phrases that we tack on the end of it. We think God's not going to really hear the prayer unless I put all these words and tack them on. And, and you know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, don't use meaningless repetition. So that, that, means, that means the 23 to 25 Father Gods. Yeah, yeah, you don't need that. Yeah, Father God, Father God. You know what? He knows who he is. He does. He doesn't need you to remind him 25 times in the process of prayer. That's empty. That's vain repetition. But have a conversation with God. And if there's something you need to say, you say it while you're driving, while you're working. Whatever it is that you're doing, you, you speak to the Father. And there's a sense of this open communication that at any moment, at any time, I can do, I can pray, I can have a connection to my Heavenly Father. And so that's what Nehemiah did. When he heard that this was going on in Jerusalem, it immediately launched him into this spontaneous prayer. But as you read the prayer, there's another thing I want to talk about, and that is that this is a very scary prayer to pray. And what I mean by that is that as you read the prayer, it was not a safe prayer. By praying this prayer, Nehemiah was putting himself on the line. He was taking a risk. A safe prayer can be prayed from a distance. Oh, Lord, let me tell you, Lord, what you need to do. Okay, I mean, there's a problem going on over there. So-and-so's got a problem, and I'm going to tell you about it, God, and I'm instructing you to assign somebody to go take care of that. That's a safe prayer. Because you, there's, not a, there's not a chance, there's not a snowball's chance that I'm going to get involved in it. You know, sometimes it's not even that demanding. Sometimes it's really dressed up and... and it's very spiritual. Yeah, like, Lord, we believe, we have faith. That you have ordained somebody that, that you can to do, do this, this thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sounds so good. And God said, yeah, I have, and it's you. <laughs> and you haven't even considered that possibility. You see, as Nehemiah prayed this prayer, as you read the prayer, we're going to read more of it as we get into this. He is, at the same time that he's praying about this distress in Jerusalem, he's surrendering to God to be used. And that is a scary prayer. You know why? Because God just might do it. If you surrender to be used, he might, he might petition you. He might command you to be, actually be the answer of the prayer. You see, a, a scary prayer sees a need and then volunteers to be the answer if the Heavenly Father so chooses to use him. I think in our prayers, we're an awful lot like little boys in peewee football. How many of you ever, did you play peewee football or have some of your kids, you know, the six, seven, eight-year-old kids? You know, everybody loves to suit up for peewee football. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than a little seven-year-old boy oh, yeah. getting those pads, you know, the thigh pads and the, you know, the, 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 the shoulder pads and, and then putting on the, the jersey and then strapping on that helmet and you know, putting that mouthpiece in the mouth and running out there and then sitting on the bench. Because you see, there's, there's, there are lots of kids in peewee football that love to suit up but aren't really all that excited about playing the game. Right. I mean, they're not really all that excited about taking some hits. They're happy to suit up and look there and cheer everybody else on the field. But they're, when, it, you know, when it comes to going into the game, they're not all that excited. But there's always the kid that follows the coach up and down the sidelines. 
said, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. I want to play, coach. Can I play, coach? And it's usually not the best player, okay? The best player doesn't have to ask. Coach is going to put him in anyway. It's usually a kid, though. He may not be the most talented. He may not be the most coordinated. But, man, he wants to play the game. And eventually the coach is going to put him in. Eventually he's going to put him in. You see, Nehemiah prayed a put-me-in coach prayer. I think a lot of times we pray the prayer, I like being suited up, Lord, but I just soon sit on the bench and watch the game and let other people go out there and take the hits, throw the ball, catch the ball, get knocked out of bounds. Nehemiah is not that. Nehemiah is praying a put-me-in coach prayer. And you see a lot of those through the, through the Old and New Testament. And these are the people that God used. Not always the most talented, not all the most eloquent, but the ones who said, I'll pray, and then, Lord, if you choose to use me, here I am, put me in, coach. Isaiah prayed that kind of prayer. Isaiah 6, he said, here am I, Lord. Send me. Use me. You know, I, I, get, I have a couple of thousand people I won't call them friends on Facebook because <laughs> a lot of them are not. If everybody considered me as a friend, I'd have 10,000. There's a lot of people that have unfriended me. Right. Okay, because I can be mean. Very. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? But anyway, uh, depends on what truth you, you love. I get Facebook. I, I put Fearless Series for Women a lot out on Facebook. When things are happening, I put a, a post the other day that the Fearless Series for Men, we started production of that. And, and I get texts, I get Facebook messages, I get emails, carrier pigeons. I mean, all the ways that we have nowadays of, of communicating. I get messages from people literally all over the world who say, James, I am so glad that you have done the Fearless Series for Women. Oh, my goodness, this is so important. It's so much needed. There are so many women that have never told anyone and are, and are dying because of this trauma in their life. James, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so glad that you have done this work. And then I will always respond. I go, well, will you take it to the leadership of your church? I just immediately come back to that. Will you risk the rejection of going to your pastor and ha having him say no? Will you be the tip of the spear? And 98% of the time, I get crickets back. Because you see, they were more than willing to suit up. They, were, they loved putting on the suit. And they said, we're going to be praying for you. And when I say, will you be the answer to that prayer? All of a sudden, well, no. Here's a reason why I can't. Here's another reason why I can't. Blah, 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 blah. You see, Nehemiah, he didn't have any patience for that kind of stuff. Nope. Nor do I, quite frankly. That's why I challenge people. You know, it sounds real good, what you're telling me. But you're a coward. You are a spiritual coward if you're not willing to say, and I'll be the answer to this, Lord. I'll be the one that makes sure that it gets into my church. I'll be the one that stands in front of my pastor, and I'll take his rejection if he doesn't want to do it. Lord, I'll put my life on the line. That's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah said, this is a big problem over here, Lord, and he committed himself to be God's answer. You know, that's, that's really been the story of sitting on a hill for, for the last 25 years, 26 years, is... is you know, pastors, people will hear about the kind of ministry we do and go, you know, it's so good that y'all are taking those people in. Uh, yeah, those, those, those and I, people. And I always think to myself, I'm you so know, the glad. church ought to be a hospital. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, good that y'all are doing good. that. And I always think to myself, I'm so glad you people are not a part of us, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That overtly religious <laughs> yeah. bull crap. I, yeah. No, thank you. Absolutely yeah. no. And then when I, when I talk to a pastor, well, pastor, this is no big deal. I mean, you can become a hospital. Oh, no, no. that's not really what God's called us to be. And I said, well, then you're not a church. No. Because the great physician 
needs a place to do his, his help, hope, and healing work, and he's called the body of Christ, the local church, to be that place. And so what are you doing? We're, I mean, that's, that's why people unfriend me on Facebook. This is, this is not in the But notes. you know what? My give it down broke. Yeah. We're connected. It we're, really has. It just broke. We're connected to a ministry called, called Glue that, uh, that brings people in who are hurting. And uh, we've, Chris Cunnington, our community pastor, is the one that, that kind of brokered this, this partnership with them. And, and they partner with, with several churches, thousands of churches. And they highlighted us in the Wall Street Journal recently <laughs> as like the poster child for how to do Glue Connect ministry. Because we actually care about broken people and have an infrastructure to actually deal with broken lives. And Chris was telling me in a, in, a, in a call that one of the ladies that works for them said they have a church that there's a very big and very well-known church. And they said, yeah, we want to participate, but, but don't send us any people with marriage problems. <laughs> we, don't, we don't really want to deal with that. <laughs> I hadn't heard this story. I'd heard that we were written up in the Wall Street Journal, but yeah. I hadn't heard this part of it. Yeah, so we're doing a, I'm doing a webinar with them in, in March, and, what, and it's for pastors. And, and what, what I'm going to say, the webinar is, is basically going to be about, look, if, if you're not interested in helping broken people and getting your hands dirty, then don't partner with Glue Connect. You're going to do more damage than you yeah. are good. Yeah. Don't partner with them so you can feel good about yourself just to turn people away that you don't really care to help. That, that just does more damage to these individuals than it does anything else. Because they come, they come for help, and they yeah. come wanting hope. And, and when, when the body of Jesus has nothing to give, they just lose hope. And that is so tragic. But it's so good that you guys are doing that. It's so good, yeah. It's so, it's so nice. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have people say, you know, J- uh, James, it, this book was just published, and somehow or another they mentioned City on the Hill, or they mentioned your name or, or whatever. And I go, well, that's so sweet of them. Yeah, that's precious. Wow. That's precious. Good. Glad to hear that. Are they going to do anything? <laughs> oh, well. Like I said, my give a damn broke. We, we digress. Is it my turn? Uh, it is your turn, and I don't think we're going to get finished if you don't hop and skip. Nah, we'll make hop it. And we'll skip. be fine. This is the second service. This is the director's cut. Yeah, they can stay till 530. The game doesn't start till 530. Right. This is the director's cut. Folks, the wheels are coming off. It's all good. This Hang on like. for a few moments. So this is not only how we're going to look at how he prayed, but look at for a moment to whom Nehemiah prayed. Because really how he prays is motivated by who he is praying to and what he prays for that matter as well. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the the people of Israel. There's lots here. Uh, We don't have time to unpack every aspect of this, but I, I want you to focus for a moment on how God is revealed in Nehemiah's prayer. How God is revealed through the words of Nehemiah. It's funny that we live in this really hostile culture, or growing hostile culture, I should say, towards truly biblical ideology, Christian worldview. And yet, as, as, as far into that as we are moving, we are still mostly unbothered by just generic God talk. Right? You win an award and people are like, I want to thank God for this. Or, you know, you score a touchdown or hit a home run. And, yeah, yeah. there's the pointing up and thank God. And, and, you know, and most people, for the, no one cares about that. They're unbothered by that. Yeah, they're not offended by that. No, it's, it's generic God talk. It's not offensive at all. It's, it's really no problem. Nehemiah is not praying a generic prayer to a generic God. He knows exactly who he is praying to. And that is evidenced by how he addresses God in this prayer and what he prays. First, Nehemiah understood that God was an acclaimed God. He was an acclaimed God. 
He was well known. Notice the terms that he uses in this prayer. First, he calls him Lord, all mm. capital Lord. Now, this is not a generic term, right? This is not like a, like a Lord of this house kind of you know, thing. This is God's actual covenant name. So anytime, just for those of you who are unfamiliar with Old Testament uh, Bible study, anytime you see the word Lord, and it is all caps, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But when it is, that is actually, I'm going to give you a really impressive theological term. You can use this to impress your friends. You can make, yeah, people will think you're really smart. Uh, That is called the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton, wow. That is a Hebrew word or Hebrew term for the four letters that make up God's name in Hebrew, Yahweh. Uh, Anytime we see the capital L-O-R-D, that is a a placeholder for God's name. The, the Jewish people felt like his name was, they were so revered it that they wouldn't even write it. They would write Lord uh, when they were doing the, the translations. And so Lord, Yahweh, I am, it all means the same thing. We first see it in Exodus. God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And uh, Israel is going to go and, and, and take the possession of the land of Canaan as God promised. But there's a major problem. Uh, they are in bondage and slavery to Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, who is incidentally the most powerful man alive. And Moses is this stuttering nobody who is running from God's call to do anything he's supposed to do. And he is expected as a nobody to go back and demand that, it, that Israel be let free, all of his manual labor, I might add, that he's not paying for. He's just supposed to let them go so they can go and take the land that they were promised by this Hebrew God. And, and so Moses has to even go and convince Israel before he goes to tell mm-hmm. Pharaoh. And this is in Exodus 3.13. He goes to God to express some concern about this plan. <laughs> Didn't think it's a very good plan. <laughs> says, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? He's saying, they're going to never listen to me. Because Egypt had lots of gods, and they had, right. each one of them had a name. And yeah. I have no authority, and I don't even know what your name is. <laughs> In verse 14, it says, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So I am, capital Lord, Yahweh. It's all the same thing. It's God's name. Now get this. Nehemiah is not praying to a generic God. He's not going, I want to give God the glory. He's saying, I understand that the God that I am praying to is well known. He is the acclaimed God of Moses, the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, the one who thwarted Pharaoh, the one who brought about the Passover, the one who led Israel to Canaan, the very land that Nehemiah wants to go to. He knows who this is, but it gets better. Look what else he calls him. He says, the God of heaven. Now, again, at first, this seems like just a very generic way of describing God. God lives in heaven, so he's the God of heaven, (laughs) right? Uh, But there's actually more than meets the eye here. If you go all the way back before Moses to Genesis 24-7, we find the great father of faith, Abraham, the great patriarch. And look at how he describes God in Genesis 24-7. He says, the Lord, all caps, the God of heaven. Hmm. He uses the exact same term that Nehemiah is using here. Again, not a generic prayer. Nehemiah is praying to the God of Moses and to the God of Abraham. He's an acclaimed God. He goes back through centuries of history. People know who he is. He's known for his wondrous works. He's well known. So he's not only acclaimed, but secondly, Nehemiah understands that he's an awesome God. Notice he says that he is the great and awesome God. And this is not like we go awesome. No. 
This is very different than that. In fact, I want you to pay special attention to the word awesome because it indicates something about the power of God, something about what God is capable of. It's a Hebrew word that literally means to be afraid or frightened. It implies a, a reverence for someone based on how terrifying they are. So you have reverence for someone because you are terrified to some degree of what they are capable of because you realize I have no control over what they're capable of. I am at their mercy, in other words, right? So this is the the kind of reverence, the awesomeness that God possesses. This is what I would call a perspective-shaping word. Hmm. This is a a perspective-shaping moment, really, for Nehemiah. In in other words, this is something that reshapes your perspective to reality. It reorients you to reality. The awesomeness of God shapes how I see everything else. It redefines how I view what is scary. In other words, things that were scary to me are no longer scary in light of this even scarier thing. Okay? Uh, let me give you an illustration of, of how this, this, may, this may help you understand where I'm going with this. When I was about 10 years old, I, uh, I used to love to go to, and still do, uh, love to go to Six Flags. I take my kids now uh, quite often. And uh, I used to love on going on, on the biggest and tallest and scariest rides available. And uh, there was a ride there, still there, called Dive Bomber Alley that I was really excited to go on when I was about 10 years old. I went for the very first time, and I think we have a picture here that we'll show you. Um, You've seen it before, the big swing. Um, And I was terrified. I mean, I was, you know, I was so anxious but, like, wanted to go on it. And I... uh, I got in, and I, and I did the thing, and it was awesome, and I did it several other times, and every time I was just anxious, and, ooh, I don't know if I want to do it again, but I do, you know, it's just kind of that rush. It was scary to me until I jumped 10,000 feet out of an airplane with a parachute <laughs> attached to me. And all of a sudden, this was a perspective changer for me. Things that used to be scary... We're not as scary anymore. Dive Bomber Alley? It's not a big deal. Not as scary. In fact, I was so jazzed up. My my brother-in-law took me uh, to do this. He was in the military and and had jumped. He jumps on his own all the time. And and so he set the whole thing up for me to come. And and so I, uh, the day before when I found out we were going, I got on the phone and and called this real crazy guy I know to come with me to jump out of the plane (laughs) as well. And uh, (laughs) my eye patch just took off. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were doing the waiver forms, and it was like, do you have any eye problems? Nope. Not one. And do you Not have any one. heart problems? Not nope. one. <laughs> Let's do this thing. Let's just jump. It was nuts. Insurance wouldn't have covered it if I'd have died. It was nuts. <laughs> here's, here's where I'm going with this. Yeah, where are you going? James talked about a scary prayer. Nehemiah prays a scary prayer, not a safe one. He's, he's praying. He's saying, put me in the game, coach, right? He's, he's making himself available to become the solution to the problem that he's praying for. And, and here's what I want to suggest to you. Let me give you a truth. That scary prayers will only be scary to you when God isn't. Scary prayers will only be scary to you when God isn't. Mm. It's scary to ask God to send you across to another nation to rebuild a wall if you aren't in touch with how awesome he really is. Because you're, not, you're never going to be sure if he's going to deliver on what he's saying he's going to deliver on. You're going to get out there and go, well, what if God lets me go out there and then he abandons me? You know, what if I get out there and God doesn't give me what I need? What if he doesn't provide the resources that I need? What what if I get out there and he hangs me out to dry? (laughs) 
right? What if when I'm praying for this problem and I say, God, I will be, I'm willing to be the solution to this problem. What if he says yes and I get out there and everything fails because God can't deliver what he said he was going to deliver? Or he says, sucker. Sucker, right, exactly. What that reveals, that kind of thinking, that reveals that you're not really in touch with the awesomeness of God. That's right. Because when you understand the awesomeness of God, scary prayers are not that scary anymore. The mission of God is not as scary as the God of the mission. Mm. That's my point. That's good stuff. The awesomeness of God reorients you in the way that you pray and the way that you understand risk and the way that you understand everything else. So he understood that he was an acclaimed God, that he was an awesome God, and finally, an accessible God. And I won't belabor this, but, but in verse 6, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open. In other words, he understood that, that God is well known across the ages, and he's known for his power. He's known for doing these insane things, taking Israel out of Egypt, leading Abraham into being the father of faith, speaking and creating everything in Genesis 1-1, right? He's known He's powerful, but he's accessible to you. The God of the universe Mm. still hears every prayer that you pray. I want to share one one thing, and and, and I'll make this quick, and then James will wrap us up, that I didn't share for service. And it was just a story that I read this week that I think illustrates something really great. We're out of time, and you're adding to this. We're good. We're fine. We'll be all right. Um, It's all right. We'll have a conversation. The... uh, there's, you know, when we talk about learning how to pray, I read a story this week by Brennan Manning, the ragamuffin gospel guy, uh, another book, but he talked about a, a woman that he met in his church whose father had passed away, and, and she was sharing about how he learned to pray. And she said, you know, growing up, my dad never knew how to pray. And he went to the pastor one time and, and expressed this finally after some years and kind of embarrassment, and the guy, pastor, gave him a, a book you know, on how to pray, and it was just this big, lofty theological thing, and after about a day, he handed it back and said, thanks, but no thanks. I guess I'll just never learn how to pray. And then he said, and eventually someone told me, you know, that you just put a chair next to you and just imagine God sitting there and, and talk to him. And so she said, and later in his life, he went to the hospital, he was sick, he had cancer, and, and, uh, and she would come in, and every day there was a chair propped up next to his bed, and she knew that he had been praying. And, uh, and in fact, at one point, one of the parishioners came in to um, sit with him and, and, you know, make sure he knew God and all that. And she, he asked, you know, what's the empty chair for? And she explained the story. And, and uh, she shared with him, she said, you know, when my father passed away finally, he died alone uh, in the hospital. I came up earlier that day to see him. And I think he knew he was probably going to pass soon. And, and he didn't want anyone to be there. And and she said, I, I, you know, was sitting with him and loving on him and all that. And then I left. I had to go pick up my kids from school. And then I got a, a call from the, the nurse. And she said, your father passed. And, and she said, but it was kind of a peculiar thing. And she said, what? And she said, he was leaned over the bed with his head in this empty chair. Mm-hmm. It's as if he was just putting his head in Jesus' lap to go be with him. Mm-hmm. That's what learning how to pray yeah. looks like. And, and that's what an accessible God looks like. Someone you can put your head in your lap and just talk to him. He's the God of the universe, but he's, he's interested in you and hearing exactly what your concerns and your worries are. So trust him. He's accessible. Finally, we're going to talk about what Nehemiah prayed. And I'm going to 
I have just two little things I wanted to say, and then I'm going to really summarize the first one and get to the, to the last one. I want you to notice what Nehemiah does after he's acknowledged God. That's the part that Derek was talking about. He's this awesome God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When, after he does that, then Nehemiah does two very important things in this prayer, and the order of them are important because you'll always see prayers in Scripture always done in this order. The first thing he did after acknowledging God is he confessed his sin. In verses 6 through 8, listen to what he says. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. He says, even I and my father's house, we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. You see, here, here's something that, that Nehemiah was really in touch with. The situation he was in as a captive in a foreign land, the situation Jerusalem was in having been sacked by the Babylonians, the temple destroyed, the wall torn down, Nehemiah understood why that happened. He wasn't blaming the Babylonians for coming in and doing this. He wasn't blaming God. God, where were you when the Babylonians came? He took the blame. Because he understood the only reason that God allowed the Babylonians to come in and do this was because of their people's disobedience. They had turned away from the Lord. They had turned to idols. And God had promised them centuries before when he first called Abraham. He said, listen, this people that I'm going to use you to be the, the, the father of and, and multiply descendants in this land, if they do not follow me, I will scatter them among the nations. But then he also said, but if they do, if they turn to me, I will restore them. Now, Nehemiah understood what was the problem here. The problem wasn't God. God simply did what he said he would do. The problem wasn't the Babylonians. The problem wasn't the Persians who had conquered the Babylonians, and now he was serving him. The problem was him. He said, when I look in the mirror, I accept that this has happened, that we are in this situation because of our own disobedience to God. And God, you said, if we did not follow you, you would scatter us. You've done that. But you also promised if we would turn back to you, you would restore us to the land. And Nehemiah is going, now God, we're turning back to you. My heart is turned to you. Ezra has been there. The temple has been rebuilt. The reading of your word has been reinstituted. The offering of sacrifices, everything you said to do, we are doing that. Now, Lord, I am coming to you, the God of heaven and earth, the awesome God. And now do what you promised you would do, Father. Restore us to this land. You know, one of the greatest things that we can do if you want to be an influence for the kingdom of God, is take responsibility for your own stupidity. Mm. You know, there are circumstances over which we have no control. That's the family you're born into. You know, I wouldn't have chosen the family I was born into. I didn't choose it. I have no responsibility for it. What I have responsibility for is the choices I made after that. And if I, if I spend the rest of my life blaming the family I was born into, then I'm never going to take full responsibility. No, the mess I'm in is because of the stupid decisions that I made. And if I understand that, I can choose to change those stupid decisions and get a whole different consequence in my life. Nehemiah is not blaming anybody for his situation. He's saying, we did this. We know we did. You told us you would do it, and you did. But you also said if we would turn back to you, you would restore us. And we are turning back to you, God of heaven and earth. 
will you do what you said you'd do? Nehemiah knew he would. So this influences begin with taking responsibility. Somebody put a sign on my door years ago that I love. It says, everything that happens, it happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. That was me, by the way. In fact, was it you? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a message you were trying to send, was no. it? Okay. I was, I, was, I was empathizing with you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is the truth, folks. And until we take ownership of that, how is God ever going to, re- to be able to use our lives? We have to be willing to look in the mirror and say, look, I am the problem here. But, Lord, I want to stop being the problem, and I want you to use me. Amen. And so he confessed, and then he committed to be used. Now, I, this is, in a sense, kind of what I've already said, but let me just do a little nuance here. L- read latter part of verse 8 to verse 11. And then we'll be done in just a second. He says, but if you, he's quoting what God said to Abraham. If you turn from me, I will scatter you. Now the continuation. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell among them there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight now to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, this is Nehemiah praying. Give your ear to the prayer of your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, hang on here. Who is this man that he's asking God to grant him mercy in the sight of? His name was Artaxerxes. He was the king of Persia at that time, Artaxerxes. If, If you've watched the movie 300, Artaxerxes was represented by that Persian king. This was the man that Nehemiah was in servitude to, King Artaxerxes of Persia. He was a bad dude. In fact, he'd already cut off any of the work, any more of the work that was going to be done in Jerusalem. And, and Nehemiah knew that the only way he was going to be able to be used of God to rebuild that wall is if God did a work in the heart of this king. Because Nehemiah had no materials, he had no authority, he had no money, he was a slave. And the only way that this was going to happen is if God did a work in, this, in this, this little king. And so he's already talked about the big king, God. And now he's saying, now, big king, you do a work in the little king's heart. And if you do that, I will go. Now, this is subtle, but I want you to get this last thought. Nehemiah never asked God to use him to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. He never once. It's not recorded. He never said, oh, Lord, use me. Mm. You know what he did? He was already ready to be used. He said, God, make it possible. Make it possible. I'm ready to go. I can't go unless you change the heart of this little king. And he was little in the sight of God. And he said, if you do that, I'm gone. I'm out of here. It'll it'll, it'll rattle their cages. I'll be gone so fast. He never asked to be used of God. He said, I want to be used of God. You make it possible. And I'll go. Now, folks, that's a, there's a subtlety to that. Because I think a lot of times what we do is we pray these safe prayers. And we say, oh, Lord, use me, use me, use me. And we never do anything. It's like you're on, you know, in Fort Lauderdale. My first pastor was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And the rich people in Fort Lauderdale live on these, live on these canals. So they park their yacht, you know, in their backyard. And then they 
go out there and they get into the intercoastal and they go out to the water. You know, all the rich folk. I, I, I'm not bitter. No. You know. But because of that, the, the yacht owners had priority was, in the this canals. This was before you wrote Refuge. Otherwise, yeah, you would exactly. have had the... Yeah, no, right. I was a great guy. Yeah. So the, the, the bridges over the canals would open up to let the boats go through. And they had priority. These big sailboats with their big tall masts, they had priority. So you're going, you're in a hurry. Sorry, rich guy's coming. We're going to open the bridge. And so cars would stack up on both sides of that bridge. And then when the boat's through, bridge comes down. Okay, you little people. The peasants now, can go. Now, yeah, y'all yeah, yeah, get on about your, you know, you get on about your business. And <laughs> I, I, I just feel like a lot of times that, that, we, that we're like that in our prayer life. Okay, so, so imagine this bridge is open and you're on this side. And on the other side of the bridge over there with the water in between you, there's a house burning down with people in it. And we get on our knees and we pray, oh God of heaven and earth, send someone to help those dear people. Lord, if I could do it, I would. Lord, you've got to send somebody to help those dear people. And the bridge goes down and we keep praying. Now, Lord, send somebody to help those dear people. We love to pray to be used. We're just scared to death that God might use us. So it's always, here am I, Lord, send somebody else. And when the bridge comes down and God says, okay, well, how about you walk across the bridge and help them? We're going, well, Lord, you've got to send somebody that's on the other side of the bridge. See, Nehemiah never asked God to use him. He asked God to make it possible for him to be used. Lord, you're the God of heaven and earth. You remove these obstacles, and when you do, I will go. I love that about Nehemiah. He's an influencer. He's not sitting back waiting for somebody else to step into the gap. Well, folks, we've gone over time. I know we have. I just want to ask you a question. As we study this man, Nehemiah, he's going to rebuild this wall around Jerusalem that was totally in shambles. Now, get this, folks. They said that the wall around Jerusalem was wide, thick enough to run two chariots side by side all the way around it. This ain't no wall like at the southern border made out of steel. This is a, this is a wall that's 20 feet thick. You can run two chariots around it, and the Babylonians had leveled it in order to level the city. And Nehemiah, a slave in Persia, with no resources, with no money, nothing but a willingness to be used of God, rebuilt that wall in 52 days. 52 days. God gave him leadership skill that he didn't even know he had. And when he left, the king of Persia provided all the materials. He provided workforce. He provided all the money and said, Nehemiah, you're a man who wants to do something. And here it is. He took all the obstacles out of the way. And what if Nehemiah had been like a lot of us? We had still been praying for somebody else to take all that money from the king and to go to Jerusalem and build that freaking wall. Stop praying to be used of God. Start praying, God, remove the obstacles, and I'll go. And when God removes the obstacles, that's his answer. And if he doesn't, then that means he's got somebody else to do it. Let's pray. Lord, how challenged we are by this somewhat simple man who had never lived a day in his life free, had never been able to make his own decisions on a day, who had nothing 
from this world's perspective. But what he had was a desire to be used of you, and he was willing to take a risk to get it done. And how you worked through that man, how you used him to do something that we can look at today from an engineering perspective and say, that's a miracle. And it was. But you're a miracle-working God. And you desire to work your miracles through those of us who will stop praying to be used and start praying to the God of heaven and earth to remove the obstacles so that we know this is where we need to go. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your awesomeness. Thank you that you are so enormously frightening and scary that nothing else in this world compares to it. Mm. Thus, we can bow before you in full confidence of your capability to do it all. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless y'all. I'm going to take 15 minutes off next week's service, by the way.